You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's Roy Wood Jr. Now, Halloween is coming up, and to help get y'all in the mood for the holiday, we're revisiting a behind-the-scenes episode on the history of black horror. <laughs> yeah, I know you. they're they going to put an echo on it. they do it again with an echo. <laughs> See, it was scary that time. In this episode, I sit down with Daily Show writer Ashton Womack, Filmmaker Tanana Reeve Du, author and screenwriter Stephen Barnes, and author and educator Dr. Robin R. Means Coleman. And together we all talk about influential movies from the black horror genre. We discuss the common roles black people take on in these movies and how these roles have changed over time. Check it out. <laughs> Welcome to Beyond the Scenes. This is the daily show podcast that goes a little deeper into segments and topics that originally aired on the show. Basically, this this, this is what this podcast is, right? All right. You ever get like an entree and then they throw in a free dessert? You know, like at Applebee's, they'd be like, congratulations on finishing your steak, pita pocket, chicken nugget, potato skins. You now get a free slice of chocolate cake that's been frozen in the freezer for three weeks. That's what this podcast is like. This The Daily Show is your half rack of ribs. And then this podcast is that free ice cream sundae you get. I got to just stop talking about food. Listen, today's topic is one that we discussed on The Daily Show. I actually discussed it. Uh, it was about, you know, black culture and scary movies and monumental filmmaking. We wrapped it all up into one segment, and I did that on CP Time. So, yes, today we are talking about black horror. Roll the clip. <laughs> when you think of black horror, you think of hits like Get Out or this year's remake of Candyman. Which reminds me, speaking of, speaking of that. Candyman, 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 Candyman. I knew he wouldn't show up. Cheap bastard owed me $50. But we wouldn't have Jordan Peele if it weren't for the pioneering black horror films that today are mostly forgotten. Movies like Son of Ngagi, which in 1940 became the first horror film to feature an all black cast. And unlike a Medea Halloween, they were all played by different people. Son of Ngagi bucked stereotypes by showing a black middle-class family battling a monster in their home, paving the way for the Winslow family to do the same thing against Steve Urkel. Ooh, suspenders. So a little later, we're going to be joined by some wonderful, wonderful panelists who are extremely qualified to talk about the subject at large. But first... I want to bring in my friend and Daily Show writer, Ashton Womack, who helped put the segment together on air. Ashton, how are you doing? Do you have Omicron? No, I am doing fine. I said that backwards. <laughs> I'm doing great. No, I don't have Omicron. I am uh, COVID-free and, yeah, no, enjoying myself. How you been? I am still waiting on a PCR result from Martin Luther King weekend. Anyway, <laughs> let's begin our conversation, Ashton. What's your relationship with horror movies in general? Let's just start there. Because I can't say your relationship with black horror because that wasn't what was pushed on us when we when we were young. Black horror existed. There's plenty yeah. of black people in horror movies. But yeah. there wasn't no Jordan Peele yeah. back in 92. Well, yeah. I'm older. Back in 82. Yeah, he existed in 92, though. He was well, alive. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, of course. Of course. So... <laughs> 
What what are what's your relationship with horror? Are you a fan of the genre in general? I'm not a I, horror movies. You know, they not. I'm not a huge fan. But you said like I did get introduced to horror movies through basically black horror movies, through Tales from the Hood, through uh, Candyman. Yes. What what feels like? I mean, I didn't know they were black horror movies at the time. That's just what my family was watching. So we was watching. Uh, uh, I know people say Tales from the Crypt ain't black, but something about. Something about him felt black. Yeah, something about the Crypt Keeper. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if this will make sense or not. I I enjoy thrillers, but horror is more difficult for me, especially if it's the, I call it the mindfuck horror, where you can't see the thing that's, killing everybody uh-huh. for two acts and they don't uh-huh. reveal it until the magical third <laughs> part of the movie. So as a child, I had night terrors, which if you're not familiar with that Daily Show audience, night terrors are when your brain is awake, but your body's <laughs> still sleep, And then it's one of the most hallucinated field experiences you'll ever go on without narcotics. So I went to see Gremlins, uh, the OG Gremlins. 84, 85, maybe. And my aunt, I love my aunt JP, but for whatever reason, bro, she fucking, she bought me the stripe, the green gremlin. Why would you buy me the villain gremlin? Because <laughs> she wanted, you was a kid? That's what buy, you used? Buy the gizmo, buy the good guy. But she bought me a stuffed animal stripe. And so I would have these bouts with sleep paralysis where I would wake up and I would just see shadows on the wall. And after she bought me that stripe um, stuffed animal, I know what I saw. I was there when I saw it. It walked down off the bookshelf and pointed at me like on some, if you ever tell anybody I did this shit to your mother, I'll kill you. And then it crawled back up on the bookshelf and never moved again. The next morning, I threw it in the trash. Threw it in the trash. Also, I believe in ghosts. So for me, like in real life, in some real life shit. Do you sleep with all the lights on? No, I'm a thug. But (laughs) So when I watch movies about the supernatural and like The Exorcist, I've never finished because it was too scary, which I guess is a compliment to the film. Yeah. You know, some of the Stephen King stuff I could rock with, you know, Tales from the Hood I could rock with. Like I appreciated that. But- I'm not like I know people who only see horror. Yeah. Who that, only watch horror. And I appreciate the genre, but it's it's a very delicate balance for If me. you only watch horror, you need to to talk to a specialist cuz that is not a healthy diet <laughs> of entertainment. You can't only watch. That says something. That's like when you put a, a, a you ask a little kid to draw and they just draw like this is mommy getting stabbed by dad. You're like, oh, this kid needs to be talked to. So when we did this thing for CP time, and I'll tell you the impetus for where I wanted to go with with this piece. And we can talk more about the idea, the ideation of it and everything. But yeah. I I don't know how I got down this rabbit hole, but I, re- oh, Halloween comes out. And Halloween H2O, if I'm not mistaken. The one Michael with Myers, LL Cool J. The one with LL Cool J. LL Cool J gets shot, he lives. And, I, and just as a joke, I go, wow, that's funny. LL Cool J... Didn't die. He's a brother. Didn't die. I wonder if other people haven't died. Has LL Cool J ever died? And then I went through LL Cool J's entire IMDb, and he's never died on camera. The only one you can maybe argue is Rollerball, but they never showed the body. So then I remembered in Scream 2 that Omar Epps died before the opening credits. Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett Smith. Mm -hmm. So I was like, that's got to be the quickest death on camera. That's funny. And then I pitch. And so, you know, at The Daily Show, you can just pitch, hey, LL Cool J's never died. Omar Epps died really, really fast. Do what you will with that. I would be in my <laughs> office. And you all came back with all of this. So, like, just just walk us through the creative. Like, what research did you all have to, you know, start going through to kind of connect all of this? Oh, it was, the research was, the research part was really fun. It was Like, what movies did you choose to uh, to feature? That's the problem. We had so many movies, like, you don't even realize, like, what qualifies as black horror movies is, it's almost subjective in the sense of, like, like in early times when there was, like, a movie called Son of Inigagi. It was the first, quote-unquote, black horror movie because it was also the first 
black, uh, all black production, black director, black staff. So it it just had no choice but to be uh, <laughs> <laughs> the first black like black horror movie, and like it would we had to choose that one because that was like the pioneer. But like the, the process was very hard because there were so many like just move classic movies that I just you forget they're horror movies because they're black movies. Like uh, one that didn't get in was we had a lot of good ones. One that didn't get in was uh, what's the Eddie Murphy movie uh, where he's Vampire, Vampire in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Vampire, oh, man. I, I was fighting so hard for Vampire in Brooklyn because that movie was just to me it was just part of my life. My, Horror my and comedy is a tough genre to nail, just in general. And that's one of the few movies that actually did it. I think Zombieland did a pretty good job of it too. Yeah. But that I mean, it's Shaun of the Dead, but that's more British type stuff. But yeah, Vampire in Brooklyn was a good one. Yeah, when he said um, he got stabbed and he was like, "This is my heart. This is my stomach. This is my heart. This is my stomach." I'll never that was <laughs> tattooed on my brain. John Witherspoon describing to Alan Payne how he saw Eddie Murphy turn into a, a werewolf and then a vampire. He flip-flopped. He did the flip-flop on me. <laughs> you ever see somebody flip-flop on you? You're flipping and flopping. And it was still scary. The final fight was still scary. He was up in a, a like that was, that's a perfect, I mean, Get Out is like a modern day, funny, scary, black horror movie, whatever. That was a perfect uh, uh, movie back then, but it didn't make it because it had a, we had a other so good choices, I think, too. I'll give you another example of what I'm talking about, about me and horror. So in the actual script, right, it calls for me to say Candyman five times into a mirror. You was actually I don't, scared. I don't know. Yes. Like, legit. Yeah. I, <laughs> I was not comfortable with that. I feel you. Like, I, I feel I've you. been asked to do a lot of wild stuff on this show. I've eaten a lot of wild <laughs> foods. I just left Idaho talking to some very wild people. Can't wait. <laughs> like Candyman, the OG Candyman. I finished it, but that one was a battle. Like I like do you know how I watch horror now? Like I watch horror with two other things going on around me. Keep lights you know, on. I yeah, like I'm not immersing. I'm not surround sounding myself. I'm not doing none of that. But yeah, when they when they wrote in the script that I had to say Candyman five times, sorry, I'm like, y'all just gonna have to. <laughs> Can and, y'all dub and, over my voice? <laughs> so so the so then the the middle ground that we reached was, I would say the first Candyman as mm. I turned to the mirror. Mm-hmm. So that candy man don't count. <laughs> I'm, you go check the tape. <laughs> candy man show up. You're like, nah, nah. I had my fingers crossed the whole time. I'm not, I'm not doing that, dog. I'm not doing that. And, and, That's and, so funny. Try this again. Candyman. Oh, there you are. Where's my money, Daniel? I don't get horror movies. I watch them for entertainment, but to me, this is going to be a bad metaphor, especially for a black-ass podcast like this one. But I liken it for me. I don't like hot food. I don't like spicy food. I don't like adding spices to my food for no reason. <laughs> so scaring myself for no reason is, I'm like, why? I just, why don't I go watch Wreck-It Ralph? Why am I here uh, terrifying myself right now? This is stupid. So I I get you, right? So, so then you know what? Let's let's take a break right now because I want to get the panel on to discuss exactly what you're talking about. Because my girlfriend watched Lovecraft Country, I she watched it. This is this is how we support black shows in our house. She watches it live. We still DVR, and then I play it back in the DVR before three days, so you get the DVR rating in addition to the live rating. <laughs> but I didn't watch it. I like racism is scary enough. Y'all didn't edit the monsters on top of the race. Like I would watch all the peaceful parts, but when the, the screen would get dark and a monster, all right, let me go check. She hit you with the. Let me put the. Let me. You don't need to see this. <laughs> she loved it, but I. We'll be right back. This is this is a great topic that you know, I'm low key scared to even <laughs> go down. Candyman might show up in this damn. I know he just might pop up. <laughs> I heard y'all. y'all say my name five times. I heard. Uh... <laughs> Beyond the scenes, we'll be right back. 
Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Beyond the scenes, we are back. We are talking black horror. Daily show writer Ashton Womack with me there in the first mm-hmm. break, man. You know what else we forgot that was a was a horror comedy, low-key? It wasn't a black movie, but horror comedy was Child's Play. Ooh. Like, Ooh. I don't know if on purpose, but when I go back and watch that first one, that one still makes me laugh. In yeah. spots. <laughs> what about Leprechaun 4? All the Leprechauns. That's all the comedy. I tell you this much, all of these white roles that we recast in black and like, you know, adding all this diversity. I am happy that when they redid Child's Play with Brian Tyree Henry, when I first heard he was in it, I was like, Lord, they finna make Chucky a black doll. This that would not, be hilarious. This is not the representation. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Because <laughs> I thought he was cast as the voice of Chucky. Like, oh no, he's an actual character. Uh, <laughs> let's bring in three guests for today's episode. First up, we have an award-winning author, educator, and executive producer of Shudder's Horror Noir, a history of black horror, Tanana Reeve Du. Tanana, how are you doing today? Amazing. It's it's hard to hear all this horror slander, but I'm doing great. <laughs> <laughs> we are just two men that are just cowards. Okay, that's all we are. We're just cowards. Uh, also joining us, a New York Times bestselling author, screenwriter, and educator, Stephen Barnes. What say you to Leprechaun in Space? <laughs> Leprechaun in space, you know, it, it may have had its its time, but when you were talking about Chucky, when I remember, I think it was in the second movie where he was going to transplant his soul into a black kid, and he said, <laughs> Chucky's going to be a bro. <laughs> hey, my ultimate plot to finally say the N-word. <laughs> and then Chucky would have been apprehended by the police. Moving right, over finally, Chucky finally gets stopped. That's hilarious. That's it. I'm sorry, is that too serious? Can we not talk? No, about okay. serious police reform in this program. And joining us lastly, Northwestern's vice president and associate provost for diversity and inclusion and the author of Horror Noir, Blacks in American Horror Films from the 1890s to the Present, Dr. Robin R. Means Coleman. Dr. Coleman, what say you to Leprechaun Part 5? Do we need a remake of Leprechaun? <laughs> We need as many leprechauns in our lives as possible. (laughs) Five, six, seven. You hear that, Kevin Hart? There's a rule. (laughs) (laughs) Leprechaun, a black leprechaun is the pot of gold at the end of the diversity rainbow. There it is. (laughs) So since we're talking about black horror, then we have to first define it because Ashton and I fumbled all over that in the first segment because we don't know what technically makes black a black horror film you know what makes that what what are the rules for that subgenre Tanana Reeve I'll start with you 
Oh, shoot. Okay. Yes. Uh, my opinion about it is Black horror can be as many kinds of stories as Black creators come up with. Sometimes it's just that there's a Black lead. Like you can have a film like The Girl with All the Gifts, which is not a Black movie. It was written by a white author, but they cast the lead Black like George A. Romero did in Night of the Living Dead. And hey, it's not just that the lead is Black, but it has a sensibility that is sort of interrogating society and shifts in society and rules of society. So it has kind of a black personality, <laughs> even if it mm -hmm. might have a white director. But yeah, black director, black lead, um, and a black sensibility. Or just filling up an invisible, like, like addressing invisibility, like we exist. We, we don't even have to do anything black. We just exist. <laughs> okay. So then for my other two, for, for my other two here on the panel. Define for me when you recognize that this was a genre that you felt drawn to, that you got something out of. Like, you know, I know we all have our own favorite film genres. What was it about or what is it about horror that you go, yes, scare me? You're already black. Well, first, I think let's start with a definition of horror. Horror would be a film who the, the primary emotion they want you to experience is dread. Horror. So whatever it is that they're doing, you know, it could be supernatural, it could be science fiction, you know, supernatural, the exorcist, science fiction, alien, it could be, you know, uh, psychological horror, psycho, but they want you to feel that emotion. So what Tanana Reeve said, who is my good lady wife, uh, is... Oh, <laughs> is, bookmark that. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that black horror would then be horror films that have a black perspective. It's a diasporic performer or writer or director or in some way connects to that. So it, being black in America is a matter of constantly knowing that you're under a low level of attack. I mean, the, the, the mortality statistics just say that for a fact. So if white people and people all over the world like dark stories, stories that are that, that touch the question of death, um, black people, I think, have even more reason to need to to balance their emotions. Screaming and laughing both release tension. Yeah, well, black people do that both when they when they laugh, they scream. That makes sense. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So so to be able to keep your keep your emotions in a healthy range. We watch comedies to release tension. We watch horror or a suspense movies where somebody's crawling across, you know, the some huge monument being shot at by spies increases our tension level, drops our tension level. We're trying to survive. We're trying to stay in the Goldilocks zone where it's not too much tension. And it's not too much relaxation because both of them will, will will take you apart. We're just trying to survive, but we have some very special needs in that sense. For me, black horror is fun. It's funny. It's entertaining. But most importantly, black horror hails my blackness. It speaks to black life and culture. Certainly, as Steve said, the socio and political but it is also about my style and my music and my aesthetic. Black horror is, it is life. It's Blackula, it's Tales from the Hood, it's Candyman 2021, not Bernard Rose's Candyman 1992. Black horror is Death by Temptation that had James Bond III, Samuel L. Jackson, Kadeem Hardison. It is all of the things that says, there's an insider conversation that we're having about black people and blackness and black ideologies. And it may speak to an external audience, but we're not gonna do all the definitional work to bring you in. This is about you, it's for you. Yeah, oh, I love that. I can't remember if it was Toni Morrison who was like, I don't have to write my stories for anybody outside of, for anybody, I'm writing to the people who understand. It was something to, to akin to that, of writing stories for us to understand, for the person, the people who need to understand, understand. And white people or any other audience having to try to, she doesn't have to like write to help explain to the white audience, to other people's audience. This is for us. I, I love that sentiment. So. Black horror is fubu. It's for us, <laughs> <bias. laughs> Right, right. And, and, I, and I get how some people don't want to lean into tension and lean into scares. Like y'all were saying, it's like life is hard enough. Racism is hard enough. Because, and like I said in the, the documentary Horror Noir, black history is black horror. And we could just put a period Ooh. there. 
But the, the person who loved horror first in my life was my late mother, Patricia Stevens Dew. She was a civil rights activist who had tear gas thrown in her face at the age of 20. So she wore dark glasses the whole rest of her life, wow. even indoors. She loved horror. And I think for her, it was about leeching out the trauma, not bringing in more. She'd already lived the trauma. She knew trauma was real. But monsters, mm. zombies, demons, ghosts, which she did not believe in, by the way, <laughs> ghosts, <laughs> imaginary horror was soothing and helped put a face to that monstrosity. And once right. in a while, the characters can win. They can beat the monster. Now, even if the characters were all wow. white, I remember being on a panel at a science fiction convention once and somebody asked me, why do I like watching slash, slasher movies? And I would say, because I enjoy watching white people die. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the whole audience cracked up and I said, you know what's really funny? You think I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> when, 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 you know, if you're going to exclude us from the movies, it's like, yeah. I'm sorry. You know? <laughs> so, but when we started appearing in, in there more, then it, it's that, it, it's feeling seen. It's feeling that, okay, we're part of, of this continuum too. We, you know, do we not feel? Do we not fear? And it's, is it not fun to watch us in those situations? The difference between the original Candyman and, and the remake is stark. The original Candyman was black trauma for white audiences. Mm -hmm. The reimagined Candyman was from our perspective. It wasn't the white gaze. White people could come and watch it if they appreciated it, but it wasn't for them. And nice. I think that, that that shift is important. So, Dr. Coleman, I'm curious, what was your relationship with horror growing up? Because what I'm starting to see, if Tanana Reeves' background and my backgrounds are any proof, a lot of it starts early on in what you tend to gravitate toward. Because I had weird real life, what I believe, there's a demon that's trying to kill me. I don't want to oh, see no. nothing about no fake demons. What was your relationship growing up? What do you think it was that drew you to this genre? So I, I get to claim horror because I am from Pittsburgh, born and raised. And for true horror fans, that's all I have to say. If you need to buy a vow, Pittsburgh is the land of George Romero. It is the land of Night of the Living Ooh. Dead. It is where Night of the Living Dead was filmed in and around. So horror for me is in my DNA. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Romero used real life Pittsburghers in Night of the Living Dead. Those were people that we saw, we recognized. They were our neighbors. They were cast as militia. And we knew that that was the black experience in Pittsburgh to have to do battle with those police. So for me, again, it's in my DNA. So since you all are historians on this genre, and I'm sure you saw the segment that I did with a terrible mustache glued to my face. Of the films that we were able to fit into it, you know, Ashen already talked about that in the first segment, that we didn't really, we weren't able to get to everything. But we did, you know, mention Son of Ngagi. We did talk about Rachel True's role in the craft. What were some of the bigger ones that you all think we missed? Blackula. Yeah, we did a segment on it, like during it, we mentioned it slightly because Blackula is so interesting. It's so funny. The only issue was it was during the uh, it was like black. We wanted we we summed it up in a black exploitation era where it was Blackula, Blackenstein, uh, Doctor Black, and Mister Hyde, where they would just add black to any horror movie, and then that was like <laughs> that's a hit. And, uh, so yeah, I w I wish we would have went in deeper because Blackula is so funny and like how it was like received at the time it's a cult classic now but at the time people were like this is some shucking and jiving what the hell is this i'd say dawn of the dead mm. because ken mm. foray was one of the very first black leads in a horror film who got to survive and a black priest delivered one of the most chilling lines i've ever heard which is when the dead walk the earth we must stop the killing or lose the war and so that made that a black horror movie for me you know, is is the idea of the thematics of it being expressed by a black man and a black man surviving the damn movie. <laughs> I'm gonna, do you think so? I'm, I'm going to put another shout out in for Blackula. It, I, I don't know. I thought it sort of shed the, the black exploitation era. I mean, this is a movie that's about a delayed move through the Middle Passage. And yes. here we are you know, in Watts in L.A. saying there's a connection between slavery and what we're experiencing in America today. 
Well, because of the actor involved, was it William Marshall? Yes, yes. William Marshall. Yes. Directed gravitas. by William Crane. He brought fantastic gravitas to that role. Think about that that movie with a bad actor in it, and it would have been trash. But he elevated <laughs> everything. He treated that as if it was Shakespeare. Shakespeare. I mean, I just I I love that movie. It was important. That's why I have to forever give a shout out to to black creators who get opportunities. Like how did William Crane, like in his 20s, how did he even get that opportunity to direct a movie? But so often when we do get those opportunities, we want to do more. I'm sure the the producers would have been happy just for him to slap something together. But he brought in, you know, the very beginning of the movie, people who haven't seen it. It's been a minute. Uh, William Marshall's character is arguing with Count Dracula about the transatlantic slave trade, uh, holding court, you know, and and it, it's like, whoa, when is the last time you saw yourself in the 1700s, right? It's just right. so, and and all the Swahili and the the history, some of it a little misguided, and but but uh, just really trying to do more. And I also mention uh, uh, what was supposed to be a knockoff of Blackula, but which became a great film in its own right, which was Ganja and Hess. Mm. With uh, Bill Gunn, they were like, hey, why don't you do a black vampire movie like Blackula? And he's like, "Um, okay, I will do a movie, but it is not going to be like Blackula. And he did his own meditation on immortality and love and death and history. And I just Mm. love seeing artists trying to work within a system that isn't really interested in our stories, but is just often interested in profiting off of our stories. Genre films can have an advantage in breaking through to an audience because genre films have fans that love that genre, just love it, and will go see almost anything within it. So a black horror film is not only going to get black audiences, but it's going to get genre audiences, people who want good horror. And that actually helps to make the world more porous, where it, it's it's possible. It may be difficult to get through that barrier, but it's not impossible. It's less impossible. So these movies actually made a difference. They got people behind the camera, not just standing as actors. One of the best examples of that is Get Out, you know, which is one of the reasons we're all here right now. When right. Jordan Peele made Get Out and, and released it in 2017, you know, as he said in Horror Noir, he he made that film to work for the black audiences. If it doesn't work for the black audiences, it's a fail. But it made $250 million. So clearly it worked for way more than the black audiences. Yes. It gave so much attention to this subgenre of black horror and has created so many opportunities. Like even our documentary got the green light the day he got his Oscar. Mm. Wow. Mm. Wow. So then because you all are so versed in this genre, I would I'll be honest in saying that because I don't watch enough horror, I miss some of the nuance that you all are talking about. So in the broader sense, where do they get horror wrong? Like, are there racist tropes and undertones that the casual viewer might not pick up on? Tanana Reeve, I'd like to start with you. Oh my gosh, there are so many. And of course, I I can't wait to hear what Robin has to say. There are so many tropes. Like they never know what to do with us, but then when they do put us in the movie, it's never it's not usually a compliment, right? If they write a black character, it's meant to be someone who is a sacrifice. The sacrificial negro is what we call that trope. The magical Negro. Oh, seriously, the magical oh, Negro. Charles S. Dutton in Alien Three. <laughs> go ahead, Ripley. Hey. I'll fight the alien. <laughs> exactly. Oh my God, I can block that out. Oh, I, can't, I can't wait to get into that. After all, I got one for you. I love Charles yeah, S. Dutton. Block that out. Ahead, um, the spiritual guide um, is another one. Um, and and yeah, there, there was also this this idea that black characters are the first to die, which isn't always true, obviously, but it happens so much that that became a trope too. Um, I think mine are, you hit the sacrificial Negro, um, the black authority figure, turn in your badge, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> oh my God, where's that come from? The, always a, always obese, oh, right. never a sexual threat. That's right. Wow. The scared Negro, the bug-eyed um, Mantan Moreland and Spider Baby. Um, the voodoo boogie person practitioner, the sassy sidekick. Oh my gosh. There are so yeah, Child's many Play of- had the voodoo man. Yeah. Serpent oh, yeah. in the rainbow. The first child's play. Mm, love Wes Craven, but that yeah, one my- he didn't get right. <laughs> Look, the first time I noticed that trope. I mean, when I, I used to go see these movies and the kids, you know, when I was a little kid, and the kids in my neighborhood would ask me after I came back, how'd they kill the brother this time? So I knew that this was going on, but the first time I understood it deeply and what it might mean was I was watching a movie called Damnation Alley. 
I ditched high school and went to go see it with my buddy Dan Pinal. And we're watching Damnation Alley, where George Pappard and Jan Michael Vincent and Paul Winfield are traveling across a nuclear wasteland in an atomic Winnebago. And they go to like the ruins of Las Vegas or something. And out of the ruins of Las Vegas comes the last woman in the world. And she's white. And I turned to my friend Dan. I said, they're going to kill Paul Winfield. And so he said, why wow. would you say that? You know, well, it, it, he said, say, you're so cynical. I said, wait, five minutes later, he got eaten by giant cockroaches. Giant cockroaches. <laughs> giant cockroaches. <laughs> After the movie, Dan asked me, how did you know? I said, it was simple. She was the last woman in the world. They weren't going to pretend he wasn't interested, and they weren't going to let him compete for her. The only option they had was to kill him, and that's what they did. And I understood right then that look for disproportionate death connected to, you know, Reproductive, reproductive competition. Black men cannot be cock blockers. Well, the white man must have access to, <laughs> to a potential reproductive partner. Uh -huh. And once I saw that, it was easy to see everywhere. And I actually compiled a list of 200 movies in what? which all, all the black men died. All of them. Anybody with at least one line, all the black men. You cannot name a movie of an American film in which all the white people die if anybody else survives. There actually is one. I finally found one movie what? in which all the white people died and somebody black survived. But 200 yeah. times. It's like, what do you do with that emotional sense? They like watching us die. It, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a very uncomfortable feeling to be sitting in an audience watching people, you know, having fun with Paul Winfield dying in Damnation Alley, Paul Winfield dying in Wrath of Khan, Paul Winfield died in Serpent in the Rainbow, Paul Winfield dying in Terminator. <laughs> oh my gosh. Generally, generally <laughs> oh to protect Just this one people. actor has died over <laughs> <laughs> He's done the spiritual guide, he's done the sacrificial Negro, he's done it all. He made a whole career out of it. That's the roles that were available. Wow. You should do LL Cool J's contract and try to live. Right? For <laughs> real. <laughs> That's right. And it you don't know, make sense. It doesn't make sense that like black people are always the first to die because I know black people in real life and we the first to run. Exactly. <laughs> Whatever something about to happen, <laughs> white the, people walking towards the danger. We like, got to go. So I don't get. That's the crazy part. Like well, it's, it's their fantasy. It's the fantasy of the person creating the movie. You know, they don't, you know, on some deep emotional level, that's that's tribal competition. Mm. And it's, you know, this is why we have to get control of the, yeah. the, the means of production in that sense. Oh, so then to that point right there, Stephen. So then to that point, as we look at the evolution, and you all have been very complimentary of Jordan Peele and everything yeah. that Monkey Paw has been doing, yes. you know, as of late. Lovecraft Country. There were two things that I found interesting about Lovecraft Country. One... It dealt with something that was extremely complex, which was racism. And they even put it a little bit more front and center than Get Out did by making the show itself a period piece. Mm -hmm. But could you also talk a little bit about, um, and I guess I'll start with the ladies. Talk to me a little bit about the evolution of the role of women in horror right now. Because it seems to be that there are more women being, you know, kind of pushed to the forefront, you know, as leads. Especially like, even when you talk about, you know, the the updated Candyman that they just did as well. Right. So Nia DaCosta did such a fantastic job with the new Candyman and brought such a great sensibility to that story. And Misha Green, Monkey Paw brought on to be the showrunner for Lovecraft Country. So I think Monkey Paw is doing a lot to elevate women directors, women showrunners. Um, there are a lot of independent Black filmmakers who are starting to get a glow up now. Nikki Jusu uh, is an independent filmmaker. She did a, a vampire piece called Suicide by Sunlight, where uh, Black people were protected by melanin. <laughs> Uh, and she's doing a, a feature film now called The Nanny, which I can't wait to see. I'll watch anything she does. So this is, a t and I, you know, and I'm have, I'm not a director, but I'm so excited to to have my first horror adaptation uh, with Steve. We co-wrote a couple of episodes of the uh, horror noir anthology film that's on Shudder. And nice. it's going to be a series in February. I don't know if you heard that, Robin. It's going to drop on AMC uh, as oh, a series. Love it. So with two episodes, two segments per episode. And um, it. It, it really is a beautiful time for Black women. And I think all, not just Black creators. You have to understand Jordan Peele and Monkey Paw have opened doors for all marginalized creators and horror, especially, to get that meaning to catch that executive's ear. 
I think for me, what's interesting about talking about women in this context, when we're talking about a horror renaissance, it is being led by women. It's being led by folks like Tanana Reeve Du. Horror isn't always just about, you know, these socio-political issues. Horror is also, it's not always about black trauma. Horror is entertaining and Tanana Reeve with contributions like The Lake, where, or, or J.D. Dillard with Sweetheart, where as creators or as women on the screen, they are just leading the charge about the complex, innovative, entertaining, funny stories that women can tell. And it's not always trauma porn, but it is about our life. It's about our culture. And that's really amazing. And I would say as a, as a horror film historian, then they're standing on the shoulders of folks like Casey Lemons and Eve's Bayou, which is so important to, yes. to sort of center and remind folks that that's out there. And so I think women are the horror renaissance. So after the break, I want to talk a little bit more about the future of horror and where you think it's going and what can people do to make sure that the studios are getting it right. And when I say people, I'm talking about people like myself, people that are on the inside, uh, on the production side of things. Uh, and then I'm going to give you all time to think about this. So I'm going to ask it now. And after the break, we're going to discuss this as a group after we get done with the actual meat and potatoes of this. I want everyone to think what to you was the funniest black death on camera <laughs> in any horror movie. Like, they died, and for whatever reason, you laughed instead of being scared. I have two. <laughs> I'm going to give you time. I'm going to give you time to think about it, but just, okay. just, 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 just stew on that for a second. We'll be right back. This is Beyond the Scenes. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my character, Gray Parrish, from my new series, Parrish. Yeah, I can drive. My character was a getaway driver. Yeah! I'm retired from life. You know that. His business is failing. His house is going up for sale. He is the everyman. Tell me about this driver job. We got a lot of action in this show. We have moments of real danger. And we want to feel as if anything could happen. Gray is invited to drive for this man. He's invited to make money, and he quickly realizes this is not the right thing to do. I did what you told me to. And he's in a world over his head. Now, let's go! He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. We've been talking about Black horror and the genre and the growth of it and how Ashton and I are both scaredy cats who wouldn't dare go. Like, I don't even fool with haunted houses no more. Right. Like, right. just the, even when they sign the waiver, you know, you know, you go to some of them haunted houses now and, and they be like, hey, uh, just so you know, they can't touch you, and it, which ruins the whole, like, I'm supposed to be feared that I might get murdered. I'm still scared <laughs> even after they announce the rules of the haunted house. Uh, I'd like to talk with the panel now about the future 
of black horror. Uh, you know, Stephen, the ladies already discussed in the previous segment just about how there are a lot more women leading the charge. And Jordan Peele has left the door. Not only did he leave the door open, he cracked open three, four more doors, dropped a ladder down from that door, posted directions <laughs> to how to get to the doors. Absolutely. But even with that, Stephen, do you think that we're, there's still a struggle in getting more black actors and actresses and more representation in front and behind the camera in the it's world? It's representation of behind the camera that matters. Mm. If you don't have if you don't have the directors, the producers, the executive producers, the people who are in the pipeline to the money, then those are the people whose whose dreams say, "Oh, this script and not that one. This actor and not that one. This scene, but not that one." It has to be the people behind the screens. Behind the scenes, and that's what made the difference after the black exploitation era in the early early seventies. It went boom and bust within only about four years. But a lot of people got jobs and they burrowed their way into the industry, and that's what you have to do. People like Jordan Peele have set the tone. He has shown that that because he is a world class funny man, he knew the the moment at which to release the tension. He knew what the audience when the audience needed to be to to be relieved. He was dealing with social dynamite in that movie. The question of do we, do we, how do you know who your ally is? Even the best people with the best intentions, you know, are, are saying hideous things and behind those, not everyone who smiles at you is your friend. So I think it, 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 it allowed us to tap into very real social tensions that have existed for, for centuries and drop that tension enough that you could have water cooler conversations with your white employees, your white friends about issues that are critical for us moving forward. So what I think is important is to study the successes. The, the beautiful thing is if people like Jordan Peele can make money, then three or four people can make bombs and it's okay. And the Hollywood can't just completely forget about it. You, you need... You know, most sperm don't get to the egg. You know what I'm saying? That that it's mutation, that, that change is brutal and violent. What we're trying to do right now, we need to be able to have at least nine filmmakers fail for every person who succeeds because that's Ooh. what it is that happens. That's what happens. Most people don't make it. So what I think people need to do is study the successes. If this is your heart, if this is what you really want to do, then make, you know, the way to get to make a $5 million movie, which is what Jordan Peele did, is you first make... A five hundred dollar movie. In other words, you on you you use your you use your iPhone. You write a one act play. You get some actors from the local drama department, and you put it on yourself, and you put it up on YouTube. Then you raise the money to make a slightly more expensive one. It's it's critical that we have everybody who watches these things and loves them starts doing it if that's what they want to do. Some of those people will be the geniuses that we need to carry this forward. Some of there there are, are people out there who are so talented, so smart, and they need to understand that the technology has gotten to the point where you can make a cheap movie and it looks great. Mm -hmm. So it's right down to: Did you care? Did you did you write a script that told the truth? Did you actually scare yourself? Mm -hmm. You know. And mm -hmm. out of all those people who try that, a few of them will succeed, and those are the ones that we need. I definitely have a question about the future of black horror movies, especially talking about your point. So Jordan Peterson made a film about uh, Jordan Peterson, <laughs> Jordan Peele, <laughs> not the same guy. Jordan, Ooh, no. <laughs> men's rights advocate. That's a Jordan black Peele, rights yeah. advocate. Yeah. yeah, Jordan Peterson's movie would have been about black people too, but it would have been a different perspective. <laughs> a slightly different. <laughs> slightly different. Yes. But your point about Jordan Peele's uh, social commentary on the question, the big question was asked about allyship, and so my yes. question is. How when will it when will it be in our, our future where our black horror movie movies aren't centered around racism? As if it's race already happened. Us oh. was not about racism. Yeah, it was and, about and, class. And this, I'm really glad you asked that, Ashton, because I was going to talk about how we're kind of at a crossroads now yeah. with black horror. Like yeah, just the whole. Duke scares me. The Baba. I don't know what that ain't racist. Right. No, that's right. That's right. right. I have my version of that. Can't wait to get that made. But hey. <laughs> but the, the, that's Mama one Duke. of. The things I, Mama Duke. <laughs> that's the thing I love about. I know I'm involved with it, I, but I love about the horror noir anthology, is that it's six different stories. And like Robin said, it's not all about racism as the monster. I mean, yes, those are valid stories and those are important stories. But sometimes we're just existing. Sometimes it's funny aspects of our culture. We have to have the room to to be all different shades of human mm -hmm. within Black horror. And the crosswords we're at now, because Steve was talking about there have to be projects that fail. 
Well, there isn't a whole lot of leeway for Hollywood executives when it comes to failure. That's why so many of the movies we look back on now from the 90s, it's called classics, Tales from the Hood, mm-hmm. Eve's Bayou. They didn't get second chances. <laughs> Those directors, <laughs> we didn't get Tales from the Hood 2 until after Get Out. And right now you hear this cry, like executives will say, oh, well, Black audiences aren't interested in trauma porn. And this is something I find to be like a very troubling sort of development. Because, yeah, there have been a few movies that have leaned into racism as the monster, and some do it well, and some don't. Roy, I'm a huge fan of your comedy, so I think of the Black History Museum routine, like as a Black artist, when you get that opportunity, right? You're like, look what you did to us! (laughs) Right? That doesn't work in a horror movie. Some films yell. Shouting in your face. The lynching isn't the horror. That's Mm. intergenerational memory. That's triggering us. We need like what Nia DaCosta did with Candyman, make it fantasy horror, like the body transformation. That didn't happen to my great uncle. He didn't yeah. turn into a, a creature, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so you have to have a little bit of a distance. So I like to say artists have to be aware that lynching is not horror, okay? Mm. And audiences have to be aware, give us some space and time to form this subgenre and to allow the artist to rise. Because this is a system mm. that, you know, there's been some more openness since Get Out and after George Floyd, unfortunately, but those doors in some way systemically can't wait to shut. <laughs> can't wait to shut. I so. know. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, totally understand that. And so it's because I, 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 I love that you said that give us space and time to grow and figure out the genre because I, I'm totally, I'm not against us to seeing like racism in a metaphorical sense of how it's affected my life in a horror movie. I, Get Out, obviously, was proof of that for me. But I like other things do scare me. Like if, it, student loans scare me. Make a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. J- Sally yeah, I mean, Mae slowly chasing me like Jason. It, 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 art, you can say that art is about two things. Who am I and what is true? And I think white racists would be very happy if they thought that we were constantly thinking about them and what they did to us. Mm. No, there is life. There is love. <laughs> there is growing old. There is, you know, my, my child is sick. There is this, there is that. There is just the humanity that we are. And it is not defined by our past, although it is influenced by it. So I look forward to one of the reasons why I felt like I, I could struggle in the industry and I'd write stuff and they'd, they'd change the, the race of, of characters that I wrote and stuff like that. And it was like, okay, it's just my turn in the barrel. And if to see a generation coming after me that doesn't have my wounds, that doesn't have my reflexive flinch at certain things, that's great. That's what I wanted. I want them to stand on my shoulder. I want them to see further than I could see. And I'm so proud of them. Go out there and talk about love and life and and death and horror without s- suggesting that white people define our existence. That's simply not or true. It's never been true. And getting the Academy Award, what Jordan Peele did with, with Get Out is make us think that all horror needs to be art horror or elevated horror and that that's why we're suddenly talking about black horror as renaissance that it's crossed over and it's become mainstream and it's always it always has to be this really smart horror the 90s we talked about leprechaun leprechaun in the hood the 90s are my favorite decade for black horror because it's none of that I don't know what the 90s is about, except that we added Z to all kinds of stuff. Bloods versus wolves, vamps, vampires. I mean, it was just Zs exploding all over the And it was funny and it was fun. And it was, you know, I mean, bloods versus wolves has got to be one of the funniest unknown undercover horror movies. Like it's blood versus Crips, but it's like, uh, vampires versus werewolves. I mean, werewolves. the black horror genre has been around for a minute. And I appreciate the attention that Get Out is bringing to it because it moves people to revisit these actually really fun and funny, the hip hop witch, come on. I mean, these are, <laughs> these are funny. Bruh, what? That's okay. hilarious. So, so Dr. Coleman, what would you like to see? Is, is there anything new? Let's talk about Beyond the Horizon. Is there anything new you would like to see? And we're talking about stepping away from racism or not letting racism be the spine of the story. What do you think is missing? Not with, uh, not in a critical way, but where do you hope that it goes next? I think we're there. And actually, I think the two people on this call, Tanana Reeve Du and Stephen Barnes, 
are leading that charge. And you see that with what they've done with Horror Noir, yeah. the anthology. But I, you know, I hope that they spend two seconds talking about what they did with the lake, which is sort of, it isn't that 90s kind of kitschy horror, but it reminds us that there are so many stories and such, so much depth within black horror that doesn't always have to be about struggle. Is this the Lake Lanier project, Tanana Reeve? No, no. I had a short story called The Lake uh, I published several years ago, and Steve and I co-wrote an adaptation of that story for, for Horror Noir. And not to be too spoilery, it's about the monster within. Mm. You know, it's about uh, a lake that if you swim in it, brings out your inner monstrosity and makes it outward. And, you know, I'm one of those, I'm, I guess I'm scared Ooh. of the woods. So anything with the title Lake, Woods, Cabin, Lodge, I will watch that movie. <laughs> and so I, I'm so excited that I had a, an adaptation of a story called The Lake. Tanana Reeve and I, there are things that we want to do. We've done some of those things in our writing. But I think that the challenge that we see right now is moving into doing more visual images. So we're looking for the stories that we can tell, that we can do as radio plays or as yes. small films that we can produce mm -hmm. ourselves. If we can produce a radio play, that's proof of concept. Right. And yep. if we do it right, we're, we're working on our skills, we're, we're gathering teams, we're showing people. And the, the, the intention is to be able to design a movie that can be done for, for funds that we can raise ourselves, say quarter million dollars. Hundred thousand dollars. It's yeah. possible. That's right. It's possible to do this, and yeah. so we want to learn how to do this. And, and our pod, the podcast that we're starting, is going to be walking people through the process of writing, getting your writing published, moving into the visual genre, working in that, and and how to stay sane in the midst of all of that. Every one of us who succeeds at this needs to leave a trail of breadcrumbs. Everybody needs to leave a trail of breadcrumbs so that the next generation coming up, black people, their allies, just people in general. This is this is the world that we're moving into where we, we're not taking the poisons of the 20th century with us. You know, it's like we can leave that stuff behind as long as we acknowledge that it happened. Right. And that it was real and that it did real damage. I don't mind going through rehab if you don't pretend you weren't driving the bus that hit me. You know, it's like, mm. don't pretend. Yes, I've got to do the work. Black people have got to do their own work in the community. But don't pretend that nothing happened. Speaking of breadcrumbs, tell me a little bit more about this podcast. Because it seemed like this podcast, y'all trying to still get everything you want through the door, but you're trying to open the door for other people. Absolutely. Hell yes. That's what yeah. you have to do. I, I'm who, who I am because of my parents, because of people black and white and otherwise who helped me. So yeah. the only way I can pay those people back is by doing all I can to give away that knowledge. I got everything I wanted out of life. I want I want to see young creators coming up and we're we're going to be telling that truth. We're going to be spitting fire every Sunday at lifewritingpodcast.com. We're we're talking about a six-step process to to take someone from not having any publications to getting published. You know, it's, it's never failed. To and learning how, to I'm learning how to maneuver in Hollywood. I mean, I like to yes. say as soon as I learn it, I'm trying to tweet it out. I'm trying to pass it on because I, right. I've learned so much from other people through social media and we can't all meet in person. So a podcast will say, look, this is our pitching nightmare story. I can't believe I said this. This is what happened. This is the That's time right. the pitching went well. Th this uh, is this is what is real. You know, this right. is this is in, in all we can do is tell the truth and the the truth from my position is I believe that people can have artistic careers. If you're willing to commit that the door, that the path has been laid, if you're willing to actually commit, if you're willing to actually say, I will give my heart and my life and my energy to this. I want to be a comedian. I want to be an actor. I want to be a writer. I want to be a director. The, those of us who have made it, if we can leave a path, that trail of breadcrumbs, we can change the world. This is the time. And the technology is there. Hollywood is scrambling. They're panicked because there are so many venues. There's probably a hundred times more channels than there were when I was a kid. There, you know, the, it, it's, it's, a, it's a seller's market if you can understand how to organize yourself to get into position. That's the thing. Getting into position is difficult. So Tanana Reeve is she, opening doors for, for people every day. I try to open all the doors for people I can every day. You know, for black people and their allies and anyone who's willing to to commit to the unity of humanity. Just I love you. They're, you're my family. Nice. So as we end this podcast and we've we've been very respectful of 
the people that have contributed and the people who have done so many thankless things. Um, I just want to end the podcast with us choosing which black person died the most hilariously. And it's no hard feelings because we've exalted you and everything that you've done up until this part of the podcast so that we can have a laugh. Funniest black death on camera. One of them was in Freddy versus Jason, mm. where this black girl basically tells Freddy to kill her so that her white friend could get away. It was so blatant that was I that sat Kelly there with Rowland? my jaw. Yes, it was. No. That was Kelly Rowland. Yes, scene. it was. And he just, that. how sweet, dark meat. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Chocolate. No, get the get out of here. What the what? The odds were wild. If it was a guy, it was chocolate with nuts, but that's white writers were just shooting back then. They were like, just say it. Just say it. <laughs> Write it down. They gotta say it. What? How sweet. Dark meat. Dr. Coleman. Funniest black. Well, boy. you talked about okay. Omar Epps. There's one that's just slightly sooner into the movie, and that's um, Black Tribesman number one in Monster from Green Hell. Uh, oh, not the kill. No, that was the big insect, right. right? Two seconds, and they're sort of okay. inflatable, and they squish him. That's hilarious. <laughs> that's insane. Y'all are so good. Y'all are so good at this. Tanana yeah. Reef. Mine isn't even that funny. But it's just like, really? If it makes you laugh or if it's ridiculous, really? It, it would have to be, and all due respect, I love this actress, but Alfred Woodard and Annabelle sacrifices oh. herself for no reason. Uh, <laughs> Jumping out of sacrifice. a window. I mean, I was yeah. like, what? <laughs> I mean, it, it, all time like, insulting yes, that's what that would, is, yeah. would, would be John Coffey in The Green Mile. Oh, yeah. Here, well, here, oh, yeah. Not Dick Holleran in The Shining? That's well, bad. Dick Harlem in The Shining travel all that distance and get act right. in the chest. Which did not happen in the book, That's by right. the way. That's right. Stephen King did not write That's that. That's right. You know, but like in, in The Green Mile, this guy, Tom Hanks, knew he was innocent. Knew it. You know, touched his hand, saw the vision. You know, and they had smuggled this guy out to heal this white woman and, and, to, and, to, and to give this guy Viagra, basically. You know, and they had 20 minutes of stupid mouse tricks. But they did not have time for Tom Hanks to pick up the damn phone and call the governor and say, this man's innocent. Oh, he could have healed himself. So Dick couldn't, that is... they couldn't shine and save Dick and say, you're going to get an ax to the chest. <laughs> he's healing everybody, but he couldn't save himself. He couldn't heal himself. Wow. Oh, come yeah. on. Those are the two most insulting yes. deaths. Those are called the, what we call in the industry plot holes. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is that Stephen King is a good guy, and he he walks a very interesting line. He could do the book, The Green Mile, and not offend me. The movie offended me horribly. Um, and in in The Shining, he, Dick Holler might have been a spiritual guy, but he wasn't sacrificial. And he wasn't the only one with powers either. So that was, that's right. Yeah. So it, it's 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 okay. He has a deep well of real art art artistry. King mm. does, which which allows him. There's just even though he obviously didn't know many black people growing up, you know, in in Maine, he treats us with a certain amount of dignity and respect. But these people making movies based on his stuff miss that completely. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's just been horrible. Jason takes Manhattan. Is oh name. yeah, I remember that. And the boxing gentleman on the roof. And Jason just lets this dude beat his face in. The man is punching Jason in the face and is like gasses himself. Fists are bloody from just, and Jason's taking every blow. And then the boxer just puts his hands down. Black boxer, he just goes, all right, give me your best shot. <laughs> and Jason uppercuts him and his head flies off Mortal Kombat style, Whoa. lands in a dumpster in the back of an alley, no. and then the lid falls on the dumpster. Oh, Flawless wow. victory. What? I laughed for 20 minutes straight. Oh, I was in the theater howling. What kind of Looney Tune shit is that? Howling. <laughs> Ashton, we'll finish strong with you. Funniest black horror movie. 
Oh, bro, I haven't yeah. watched a horror movie since Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, the last, the, I don't, ha- I can't think of a, a death, but I will say you guys have inspired me to write my own horror movie where LL Cool J dies multiple times. So uh, <laughs> thank you for the inspiration. I don't. <laughs> if you could have Morgan Freeman get a kiss in that same movie, I'd appreciate it because he has not had a single kiss in his entire screen career. Yo, what? LL Cool J is Mama Duke. I like. <laughs> Let's write this script. <laughs> Morgan, Morgan right Freeman never kissing anybody. That might be the next CP time we do. Oh. Uh, this, <laughs> I'd like to end also by a quick shout out to Samuel L. Jackson's death scene in Deep Blue Sea. Absolutely. Now, uh, the I know it's not necessarily horror. But that's a pivotal, that's a pivotal that was, scene. It was a wonderful death. We you thought he what? was a lead. Yeah. And then he just <laughs> got his ass chomped up. And it was and, so out of the blue. You want to talk about a jump scare. That was that was so random. In it the was. middle of a pep talk. That's right. <laughs> in the middle of a pep talk. And they just chomped his ass. And then they cut to Michael Rappaport just horrified, <laughs> hugging a pipe. <laughs> and they built it all up. Sam Jackson was all, hey, um. Because they, they've been bickering or whatever, right? You think said, water is bad? Wait until you've seen snow. <laughs> Nature can be it's lethal. Icky. But it like does it hold a candle to man. <laughs> now you've seen how bad things can get and how quickly they can get that way. Where they can get a whole lot worse. So we're not going to fight anymore. We're going to pull together and find a way to get out of here. First, we're going to seal our hands. (laughs) That one wins. That one wins. I was so horrified. I cannot thank you all enough for coming on the show. Like, this has been downright a joy. Tanana Reeve, Stephen Barnes, Dr. Robin Armin's Coleman, and Ashton. Thank you all so much for going beyond the scenes. I got to pitch y'all some movies. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to The Daily Show Beyond the Scenes on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.